Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Karapina, and today I am so excited to welcome Denise Lambertson. Long before Denise was hailed by Forbes as the founder changing the influencer marketing platform between celebrities and startups, She was leading the industry in brand partnerships and celebrity integrations and turning the traditional endorsement model on its head. In 2009, Denise founded LMS, and after serving the consumer goods startup community for 10 years, Denise launched Constellation Capital, a venture fund that combines unique deal access, high-profile limited partners, and marketing expertise to capitalize on early-stage high-growth consumer goods investments. Welcome, Denise. Hi, Fernanda. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's so great to have you. I know we've been wanting to do this for a while, so I'm excited to have this time for us to chat about your work history and all the amazing things that you've done. I know it's going to be a great interview. So before we start, Denise, give us, um, give us some context about what life was like for you growing up, where you came from, how you got started in this space. Uh, sure, absolutely. I was um, born and raised outside of San Francisco and uh, the oldest of six kids. Uh, my dad is a, a prolific businessman in the music industry. So I grew up listening to him uh, negotiate and do deals and talk about his industry and, you know, really credit him for showing me what it looks like to you know, have your career be a function of your purpose. And so, you know, as I grew through, you know, high school and and into college, I always looked at work as not something that I had to do, but something that I was, that I wanted to do and was really excited about being independent and finding that sense of purpose and putting it into, you know, into my career. I was pretty lucky early on, um, you know, because my, my dad was in the music business and um, also a function of right place, right time. I had a very unique first job out of college where um, I ended up being Madonna's executive assistant. And I worked for her for about six years and had just an unbelievable first job uh, experience. Um, I I did three world tours with her. She put out three albums. Um, She moved me to London for a few years. It was truly one of the most unique uh, experiences I think um, that one can have. And I got a tremendous amount of uh, confidence, experience, um, identity, resourcefulness out out of that role but ultimately learned that I didn't want to be in the music industry, which was, you know, slightly <laughs> heartbreaking after such, um, like a, an incredible layup into it. And, you know, so after six years, I started to contemplate, well, what do I do with this incredible experience? What parts of this did I truly love? What would I give up? What would I take with me? And those hard questions were the catalyst for what was ultimately my, you know, the beginning of my marketing agency. 
So I, I, before we move on to the marketing agency, I'm just kind of curious, during that time, um, I can imagine it was probably very exciting and also very challenging. Um, was there one thing that you took away from that experience that you feel really helped to guide your own um, career as a professional woman in working with her? Well, absolutely. I mean, she, what you see is what you get with, with Madonna. It's really, um, you know, and she's a a fierce feminist from, from day one. So, you know, I, I certainly watched her stand up for herself and stand up for her vision and um, express her, uh, you know, expertise and, and demand um, the respect that she deserved, which was uh, incredibly empowering as a young woman in business. Just, you know, you hear these buzzwords, but actually having somebody model it for you and show you the way was um, a, a beautiful gift that she gave me. Um, and, you know, I, I pull on that, you know, every day, frankly. Um, but mm. beyond that, I, I can say that when I think about what I learned from that experience that has helped me every single day in my career is, um, it, it, you know, Madonna is not a, a woman that that accepts no as an answer. And so I learned that there is a solution for everything. And it's just, you know, uh, don't be overwhelmed by the challenge, like, like find the solution because it is there. Um, and that has been, you know, in my kind of darkest hours as we all have building businesses and uh, hard moments, like just drawing on that foundation has been so valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the startup ecosystem, those dark hours happen quite a bit. (laughs) Exactly. Um, And I think it is really great to be in community with someone who can model that kind of, um, strength and perseverance. Um, so that's, that's amazing. So how did you then make that? You just woke up one day and you said, okay, time to move on. I'm going to start my own company. How did that happen? Uh, if only, if only it was that simple. (laughs) Um, you know, you know, I started probably at around five years thinking like, you know, uh, what more do I need to do here to feel like I have fully taken advantage of this, uh, incredible opportunity and, but I don't think that this is it. I don't think I want to stay in music. So I, it was a, um, a long process. And honestly, it was like the first identity crisis that I, that I had, um, you know, who am I without being able to call and say, this is Denise from Madonna's office and having every person answer your you know email and everyone get back to you right away. Like what, who am I without that association? It's so powerful. Right. And it can be almost, um, hypnotic. And um, I really, you know, in in my resignation, I wanted to really honor um, the work that I had done with her. So I I gave her a significant amount of notice time. um, And it ended up drawing out to almost six months, because I really wanted to like leave her with with somebody really wonderful so that she didn't, you know, so she could go on with her Mm -hmm. life. Um, And because of that prolonged resignation, I I couldn't really um, commit to anything else. I really just had to, uh, you know, not to sound cliche, but like leap with, without a net. And, um, and I, I, so when I, when my official last day finally came, I started to look around at, okay, well, you know, let me, let me decompress for a few weeks. Let me take a, a minute off. And then, and I lifted my head up Fernanda and I, it, it's like embarrassing to say now, but it was the spring of 2009 and I hadn't 
quite noticed that there was a global financial crisis happening. Like I had been so immersed in that bubble. Um, and we had just come off of a tour and I, like, I just, I thought the world was going to be waiting for me with open arms being like, Hey, here's this great career, Denise, you've always wanted. And, um, it, you know, there, you know, not only did people not, I, I thought I was going to go find a job in house somewhere. I like envisioned myself in a corner office, like head of entertainment for Google or something just like, so <laughs> naive. And not only were there no jobs, uh, but like nobody knew what to do with me. I had such incredible experience. It was so interesting to people, but nobody knew quite where to put me. And, and I didn't know. So I started what was abundant at that time was, you know, contractor money, 1099, uh, lots of freelancer gigs around. So I just started to put myself into um, short-term freelancing gigs at these, uh, you know, really cool companies, or sometimes I thought they were cool and then I got in and they weren't as cool as I thought. Um, and, and that was I mean, a great way to, you know, do the proverbial dating before you marry in, in a career sense. Uh, it really helped me like by process of elimination be like, okay, I, I can do this, but do I want to do this? Do I like doing this? Is this driving my purpose? And, um, it also really helped me understand what, what the market wanted for me. And it turns out that the network that I had built working with Madonna, um, you know, so like being essentially her gatekeeper for six years was really valuable to brands at that time. And that demand from the brand side helped me shape my company. And, you know, but, but honestly, I was, a, I'm literally like a contractor that got too many clients and just like decided one day I was an agency. Uh, you know, I like put mm. up a website and was like, I don't think I need to find a job. I think I have a business. So let me just act as if, and let me get some business cards and, you know, it's still just me, but you know, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe people will believe me and I can grow into something. So <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a, um, it, it was an evolution for sure. So just so that our listeners completely understand when you were doing your freelance work and you said you found that your experience working with Madonna really helped you get um, business from brands. Can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day -day work was? Absolutely. So, you know, if you think back to 2000s and uh, in particular the 2008 to 2010, uh, it was this really interesting time in marketing for brands where, you know, the... Uh, music industry had imploded. There wasn't as much money in CDs anymore. Uh, all of a sudden celebrities and uh, musicians where they would never have done brand deals in the past because they were kind of like degrading to their overall reputation or they would do them like overseas where nobody was watching. All of a sudden that became, um, a, you know, a part of their, their repertoire um, and the way that they earned income was to do brand deals. And so, you know, the era of the supermodel was declining because, you know, celebrities and rock stars were taking their place. And it was interesting because, you know, it, it, it's hard to imagine that, but brands really had no idea how to integrate celebrity and the a personality that was already established and rock star and, you know, pop star into their marketing. So uh, it, I was often brought on to build campaigns or there would be, you know, a, a project or a campaign that was started, but they, but it wasn't going well. So I was, I was seen in the beginning as like this, a little bit of the, you know, like a 
celebrity brand whisperer that I could really help the both sides of the table understand each other and, and the business world and the entertainment world um, to be able to have you know, like a, a successful partnership. So that's what it was for the first few years. And it was at a really interesting time in history for the startup world also, though I wasn't in the startup world yet, but it, you know, one of the most cited case studies to me to this day is 50 Cent Vitamin Water, that kind of legendary story. Yeah. Um, and that was all going down in 2008, right? So Vitamin Water was selling to Coca-Cola Coca-Cola for around $4 billion. And that was, you know, in 50 cent as legend goes, just made an, a, you know, obscene amount of money off of a revenue share and um, an equity position in that company. So when I was building these partnerships and helping these big fortune 100 brands, you know, build celebrity campaigns, the celebrities that I knew were starting to ask me about startups. You know, I got a lot of like, Hey, Denise, go find me my vitamin water. Like, that's really cool. I want to do something more like that. And that um, that's inevitably where my, my agency and my services went because I, I realized that, um, you know, that there was this great opportunity. The talent really wanted to work with products that they loved and where they would have a real opportunity to, make an impression and have their creative voice heard and, um, you know, be at the table with really passionate founders, you know, and there was that desire, but there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a mean to connect that or to do, you know, to build those in a thoughtful way. So, um, you know, when I first started freelancing, it was very much about being this kind of, kind of like the wolf from Pulp Fiction, like the fixer almost, right? Between mm -hmm. these celebrities, but, but it, it led into um, really, honing in on a niche and understanding where I was meant to, you know, spend my time and efforts. And how long, um, how long did it take you upon launch of LMS for it to fully take off? I would say about two years where I was kind of straddling the fence and doing a little bit of both. Um, you know, like I still had some big clients, uh, big, you know, legacy brands, and I was you know, if you could see me right now, I'd be doing air quotes, air quote, trying, trying out stuff with, with, um, startups. Uh, so it, it was, I think in 2012 or 13, I got, um, guilt group as a client. And if you remember, I, you know, in, during the height of the daily deals explosion, um, mm -hmm. you know, guilt was, guilt group was one of the most premium, uh, you know, it was like on a fast, growth track. I mean, I, I joined them as a, a freelancer. I think they had just raised a hundred million dollars. And that was one of my first experiences where I, they took a, you know, they, they took a lot of my time and I got to go and be in, in with the team at guilt. And I just, I will never forget the feeling of walking into that office. There were young people everywhere. There were ping pong tables. There was <laughs> beer Fridays and like laughter and um, like just this really positive buzz. And I just lit up. I was like, this is where I want to be around people that are this excited about what they're building. Like, I don't want to go back to these, you know, big old companies where everyone's you know, kind of tenured and, and they just want to do the same thing they did last year, but just a little bit better type of thing. Like I really, that feeling of being in the, in the room, building something exciting, connected at guilt group. And, um, and at that point I started to off offload all of the former, you know, blue chip companies and, and focus exclusively on startups. 
So exciting. What an amazing time in history to kind of be going through all of these transitions, given that all the firsts and everything that was really changing during that time. You know, one of the things, obviously, that a lot of founders deal with is just kind of that fear factor of, you know, am I doing the right thing? You know, am I making the right decisions? You know, am I going to make enough money? Are we going to turn the corner? Were you, are those any were those any issues that you were struggling with at the time, or were you like Madonna, pretty convinced that this is what you needed to do, and, and you didn't really allow the fear factor to become an issue? Oh, oh my gosh, no, I was I was uh, petrified. I like look back and can't believe that I was actually able to mobilize. Um, you know, I think that that so much. Uh, you know, when I worked for Madonna, she was in her her forties, and um, I think so much of that confidence comes with you know, experience, frankly, and um, like picking yourself up when you have fallen down and, and like knowing that you can depend on yourself. And I just didn't have that yet because I didn't have um, that kind of depth in what in what I was trying to build. So, I mean, I remember just like signing clients and then uh, like sitting down with my husband and being like, oh my God, how am I going to service this client? There's just mm-hmm. one of and I felt like I often remember feeling such an awesome responsibility because, you know, the startups that I was working for, you know, every penny counts. So I want, I like wanted deeply to just knock it out of the park for every single one. And that responsibility felt so heavy on me that it was, you know, it, it was paralyzing in moments. Luckily I was able to get through it, but um, I, yeah, I was, and, and also um, I look back now and I think like, you know, I never worked at an agency. I have no idea how to run an agency. I have no idea to build an agency. Like, I don't know like some of the basic, you know, service business tenants around what margins should, like I, I like had no, no, nothing to jump off of, which in some cases I think served me because, you know, maybe if I had known to, I would have um, been too scared. But, but in a lot of times I was just like, you know, trying something, breaking it, fixing it, and real, and then deciding, okay, this is the way. But I was petrified, like the majority of the time. And were you helping those startups um, connect with talent, influencers, celebrities who could, you know, kind of endorse their product or be part of their company or have a role play in some way? Yeah, that's exactly right. So in the beginning, when I really honed in on the focus of the agency, which was to serve um, consumer startups and connect them with high profile people that could, you know, help scale their, their Mm -hmm. business. I was really focused on understanding what was the right kind of person at the right life cycle of a company. And that was really what led me to influencer marketing, frankly. And, And I delineate celebrity and influencer where, you know, celebrity is, um, you know, they have a, a day job in, a, you know, sports, TV, film, or music. And influencer has a, um, you know, has a, a day job in, as, it, you know, in their online world, or they have impact in their in their community. Um, but you know, obviously, those lines are, are pretty fuzzy. But but back in the day, I I had a lot of, you know, I ha- I started to have some successful partnerships and you know, word kind of got out that I was able to put these deals together, which were, you know, kind of complicated at the time, right? Like sweat equity for marketing services was not really popular back then. And, you know, representation of talent in particular didn't like it. And, you know, it was was just hard to get done. There were not, there wasn't a lot of roadmaps. Um, So I started to get a ton of referrals and I would get these companies coming to me and 
a lot in um, consumer packaged goods, which, you know, if, if, if you take an example of like a healthy snack or a, a beauty company, et cetera, like typically in 2013, you're not launching D2C, like you're rolling out your distribution market by market um, in retail. And so what is the point of having, you know, Rihanna as the face of your brand, if you're only available in Whole Foods Northeast and 99% of the people that would hear about it from her can't actually walk into the store and buy your product. Mm. And so that was, you know, there was all this glamour and glitz and excitement about celebrity, but there was the, you know, I started to realize that so much of my role was helping people not get um, blinded by that glamour and actually integrating the right people at the right life cycle of their business. And, you know, that that's, uh, as I said, what led me to influencer, you know, back then we didn't have the term influencer. I called it, you know, local hero programming or, <laughs> you know, like kind of borrowing a, a page from the Red Bull book of marketing. But, you know, that that's really what it was. And it was about finding people that could drive the velocity on shelf for, for, you know, if you take that example of Whole Foods Northeast in like, you know, the Boston area with a lot of local credibility, it's and you know, and, and then as the business grew in distribution, I would grow the program to the point where they were ready for a celebrity um, and everything a celebrity could bring, right? Like, you know, there's a big hit with the celebrity is it can like be really taxing to your supply chain. It can be taxing to your website, you know, like all sorts of things you really mm -hmm. have have a strong foundation. Um, and so like the, the kind of marquee service back then and to this day, you know, it's, it's cool. It's sexy to do stuff with celebrities and, and startups for sure. And that's what gets us the most attention, but really there's a lot of really important foundational work to do in, you know, social media and, uh, influencer and, you know, operations and all of those things, uh, before you get there. And um, I could talk about this literally for the next couple hours. So I'm going to have to force it. Right, yeah. No, it's so, it's so interesting. And it's so relevant to be global and a lot of the founders we have um, who are, you know, kind of in that space and really interested in those partnerships. So I'll ask one last quick question. Yeah. Um, I recently watched actually a, a video on YouTube about the co-founder of... Um, of Kim Kardashian's uh, company and Chris Kardashian and Chloe Kardashian. And it was just really interesting. I don't remember the, the name of the woman who actually created all of those companies uh, with them, but it was just interesting to hear how those relationships evolved because she was originally on the entertainment side and was calling on Chris as a manager and then decided to start her own business and had the idea for, um, for these products and then propose them to the celebrities and then I have no idea what the financial arrangement was, but I was curious when I was listening to it, you know, typically what are those financial arrangements? I mean, obviously there must be like a huge chunk of equity that's given to someone like that to really become the face of a brand, but is there also revenue financing? Are there different levels? I mean, is there kind of a menu sheet? How do those deals work? Yeah. Well, first I want to give credit to the incredible Emma Greed, who is who you're talking about. Um, yes. I don't know her personally, but she is, you know, a le legendary for what she's done with all of those businesses. And, um, you know, if anyone listening uh, wants wants to check out a phenomenal woman in business, I would, you know, highly recommend, you know, reading up on her. It's, it's really inspirational. So 
And then to answer your question, Fernanda, it's it, and this is going to be an unsatisfying answer, but it's really, it really depends. And I'll, I'll try and take you a little bit farther than that, just so it's a little bit more valuable, but there's a spectrum of how, you know, a celebrity can get involved with the brand. To your point, they can be a co-founder, um, which is what, uh, you know, the Kardashian women have done with the majority of their businesses, but you can also be you know, you can also sign on for a campaign or for you could co-launch a flavor like 50 Scented with vitamin water with Formula 50. You, there's all sorts of ways that you could add marketing value. And so there's all sorts of different ways that you could slice up the compensation for that. Typically, equity is a foundation of equity should be there, right? Like if not, then people are going to want to get their market rate for endorsements because they're providing services and, and that's fair. I will say on the revenue share side, and this is where my experience as um, an investor, you know, has been really interesting. And it's sometimes like, you know, can be diametrically opposed to how I feel as a marketer or somebody putting deals together. But, you know, I don't like it when anyone takes money out of the business uh, revenue wise before it's profitable. And a mm -hmm. lot of times the clients um, that we work on or the companies we invest in are un unprofitable by design for a very long time. And in some cases until they get acquired, we've done at, at my agency, we've done plenty of deals that have a component of revenue share in them. And it's, it, you know, it's good to, you know, through that lens, it's really good to mix up the comp in that way and have a little bit of equity, a little rev share, keep people interested, invested um, in the process the whole entire time. Um, but from an investor standpoint, I, you know, I want to make sure that the company is capitalized enough to continue to grow. And, um, you know, they're not, nobody's taking money out of the business before it's ready. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So now let's talk about Constellation Capital. Um, how did that come about? Was that another one? Denise wakes up one morning and says, okay, it's time to move on. Um, it, was, it was a little bit of that. I mean, I, I haven't moved on from the agency, but it was, I think of it more as an evolution than as a, like a transition because, in, you know, really I, I've been following the path of where business and um you know, entertainment and celebrity intersect. And so, you know, first that started with big brand endorsements, then that went to sweat equity and startups. And then, you know, the next evolution of it was um, all, all of a sudden celebrities want to be investors. They want to put money into businesses. And, and that happened for me, um, you know, at the, for the first time in uh, 2015, but wasn't like announced until 2016. And, you know, we, we put together a, Mark deal for my agency at the time with um, Beyonce and Watermelon Water. And, uh, you know, Beyonce had just finished a three year deal with Pepsi and which has been very widely reported. She got paid $50 million for that deal. And she, um, you know, decided instead of going back with the soda brand um, that she was going to invest her own capital in, you know, a sub <laughs> a one-year-old into markets beverage company that she really liked. And, you know, I had gone to her out, out as like a sweat equity partner, knowing that it was like laughably, um, <laughs> you know, a, a laughable moonshot that, that Beyonce just doesn't do things like this. And not only did she decide to do it, but she wanted, she wanted to put her own capital in. And I was really excited and proud. And I worked on that deal for a little over a year. And um, when it finally got done, I, realized, I kind of found out the hard way that, um, you know, I can't, 
I can't commission a deal like that, right? Like a lot of times when deals close, I get um, I get a portion of the equity in that I've negotiated as a bonus or a commission or some sort of um, you know incentive for getting it done. But I couldn't do that because of uh, broker dealer laws. I realized I would work really hard, and I was on the outside of that deal. And luckily, I had uh, you know great great partners at Watermelon Water, and we figured it out. But I didn't. I, there was nothing paper that gave me the right to um, demand to be compensated for my my work there. And I just had this moment where I was, I felt, oh my gosh, this is where my industry is going. Like, you know, Beyonce does something. It kind of gives the rest of the entertainment industry um, like permission to do, or it just becomes like a part of our zeitgeist. And um, I was like, I've got this great group of celebrities that trust me and I've helped them make a lot of money doing really cool stuff over mm -hmm. the last few years and I've got these incredible brands that always need capital and strategic capital is so important but like where do I fit in and I can't just do this for hugs and high fives and so I you know like spent about a year trying to figure out the model and you know how can I do it etc and people were telling me you know so the first iteration of my fund was that I, I just started to negotiate into my contracts with clients that um, I would get the right to invest into their company at the same terms I negotiated for the celebrity which which were you know pretty preferential but um, you know, I have a service business, and my service business was growing really quickly. And you know, we don't have um, investors in the business, and I, you know, we run off of revenue. And so, what does that mean? Like sometimes when I, after I negotiated so hard to, for the right to invest, I wasn't actually liquid enough to take advantage of it. Right. And you know, and then those companies started to sell, and I was like a little crestfallen when I, you know, I wasn't able to participate in a big way. So. It was around that time that, you know, a lot of my peers and advisors and friends were like, why don't you have a fund, Denise? You should have a fund. You should invest more. You should have a fund. Like, it was just became like almost laughable how much I was hearing it. And, you know, it, going back to your question about fear and imposter syndrome, I was, uh, I mean, I spent a year saying, I'm not qualified. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't like, I didn't go to school for this. I don't have 10 years at Morgan Stanley like, no, no, no. These are all the reasons why I shouldn't do this. And, you know, it was finally a advisor that I was having lunch with this, that's, you know, said to me, Denise, I don't think you, I think you're overthinking this. I don't, you essentially have a venture fund just without the capital at your agency. Like you're, mm -hmm. you know, sourcing deals, you're bringing strategics in, um, you're getting, you know, some common as a part of your um, relationship, you're adding value, like, and then they're exiting, like, you're just not capitalizing them. That That is like, really what a fund does. And I was kind of like, oh, oh, really? Well, yeah, I, I do that. You're right. I totally do that. And so, yeah. yeah, so, um, so that was when I started to to take it really seriously. And, um, and then, you know, it was, it was shortly after that I had like a really serendipitous meeting with Sophia Vergara and she basically had asked if I could help get her into great deals. And, you know, why couldn't I just help her with this part of her investment world? Because she loves, you know, she told me she loves my taste in clients and products, but you know, she doesn't want to be the face of every single one for sweat equity. And, you know, I, I shared with her, oh, I'm thinking about 
launching a fund, but, you know, here's the 10 reasons why I'm not, you know, I probably won't and I'm not qualified and, you know, all the things I've been saying. And she was a, a major supporter and she said, I think you should do it. And I would, um, you know, essentially offered on the spot to be my anchor, her and her um, manager and really felt like it was a great way for them to participate in investments without having to promise all of these services when mm -hmm. she really wanted to be focused on her career and on her family. But, you know, if she loves, it, you know, her point is, if I love it, I'm going to support it in a way that feels really natural to me. So the, she really liked the model that would allow her to do that. Mm -hmm. And between those two conversations, it, it all clicked. I was like, oh, here's a reason, right? Because I'm a marketer and I'm like, I'm always looking for the why. Why would I do this? Like, does the world need another fund? And all of a sudden with, with Sophia and her, um, you know, kind of setup, I started to understand the why. And then I, you know, with my conversation with my advisor, I started to contemplate that not only did I know how to do it, but I've been doing a version of it. And, and you know, with those two things combined is what get, finally gave me the, um, the confidence to start, start Constellation. Well, I, that's an incredible story. And, and I'd love to have you back to talk about what's What's after Constellation? Because I think to understand what's going to happen when you roll over someday in the next few months. But, but we'll save that for another time. So now I want to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the theme of the podcast, which is startup hacks and how to save time, money, and gain a competitive edge while bootstrapping your business. So I always like to spend a lot of time talking about um, a founder's history and the current business so that listeners can really understand the journey because it's so important to understand that context. But while you were in the thick of it, obviously it's a little different now. Your business is doing great. And I'm sure you can have all those resources at your disposal that you need to really scale your business. But are there, you know, three tips or strategies or resources that you used in the early days that perhaps you still utilize today? that really helped you? Absolutely. So, you know, especially in the early days, I mean, you know, we, I conceptualized the agency as a work remote from day one. Um, and, you know, I know that that's very common now. And, um, you know, but essentially the idea that it's great to have an army of subject matter experts that you can use uh, from a contractor or a freelancer basis, uh, wherever they are and calling them when you need them, but not, not build this really clunky overhead heavy company that, that requires a lot of, you know, W2 and, and employees that, you know, my biggest fear always with my agency is I just didn't want to become like what I call an HR CEO, which is somebody that doesn't get to actually deliver the work or do the thing that they're passionate about that they started because they're so busy managing the employee base. So that, that, and that's kind of a half answer. So I'm going to give you real, mm. like th real three other ones that I, um, that I still use today, but, um, First and foremost, I cannot speak highly enough of my experience reading and integrating principles by Ray Dalio into my life and business. Um, <laughs> the first business, I and mean, I've read many business books in my life, but it was the first one that I read where I felt really seen as a entrepreneur and deeply connected to that methodology of developing principles and um, and like learning from what you've done and putting a system into place. So you know, again, I, that, that's a big one for me. 
On a more tactical level, and I still do this to this day, I do not take calls before noon. I need focus time in big chunks. I cannot stand, um, you know, you have a 30 minute call and then you're, you have 30 minutes to get through a few things and then you've got to jump back into a meeting. I need to be able to spend half of my day working on my business, not in my business. So that mm-hmm. is, you know, just a hard, fast rule that the first, you know, and I'm, I'm a morning person, I, you know, I know that that's, that's different for everyone, but I would say like, just making that a non-starter that there is a section of your day that is just not up for grabs for anyone or anything has been um, really, really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. And then the last one came really crystallized for me when I was raising the fund. And that was such a, you know, when I was fundraising, which I know so many of your listeners can relate to. um, And it's such an intimidating process. And, you know, I'm a first time fund manager in my 40s that doesn't have a traditional track record and all of these things. And I would just get petrified walking into, um, you know, pitch family offices and, you know, really uh, seasoned and astute angel investors. And I made a choice pretty early on that I was going to say it first is what I call it. So instead of waiting to be asked, like, what's your track record? What, what have you done to get here? I would go in and just be like, Hey, this is going to be one of the most different things you've heard this year. I am not your typical venture capitalist. I do not have a traditional tracker. And I would basically say first, all of the things that I knew uh, that people were concerned about. And instead of hiding it or stammering or waiting to be asked, I would just acknowledge it first. And then I would use that as a jumping off point to talk about all of the reasons um, that that wouldn't hold me back and that, you know, all the unique things that I had that made it, um, you know, valuable, but it really, you know, saying it first and is something, and I encourage my team to do it, you know, like it, it just takes so much of the pressure and the fear out of something when you raise your hand, even if it's like, Hey, I just want to tell everyone I messed up. Like when you say it, as opposed to, you know, having your boss find out that you did it right. Um, it, it's, it's really empowering. So that that's a big one. Yeah. I think that's actually an excellent one to be able to diffuse the situation by putting it all out there up front so that you don't have to worry about what the bubble over the head is saying. I think that's excellent. And it's also a great way to relax someone within a meeting because you're confronting biases and presumptions and it, gets you in front of it so that you can respond to it and defend yourself so they're not internally having that dialogue while you're pitching. Yeah, totally. A thousand percent. It's it's scary the first time you do it, but I would you know recommend everyone trying it. Yeah, absolutely. So you can always use the you're probably thinking. Exactly. Well, Denise, we are um, way over, but I so enjoyed our conversation. And I think your journey and your story is so fascinating and so relevant to where the business is is continuing to go and and evolve. Truly, really interesting the way things are going, especially with crypto and NFTs. And there's just a, you know, I definitely want to have you back for a part two. Um, But thank you again. And I'm just going to ask you one last question. If there's one piece of advice you would give to a founder who might be listening right now who's having self-doubt or questions about their business, um, you know, their business model or 
you know, just questioning themselves in general, would you, what advice would you give them? Um, I would tell them if you're scared, it means you're ready. And that was a piece of advice that my uncle told me in my early twenties. And I didn't really understand it at the time, but it has proven to be true. I think if you're, if you're scared, if you're overthinking, you've contemplated every, um, strength and weakness and it, you're never going to know for sure. So, but the fact that you're, um, uh, you know, self-aware enough to be fearful means that you are ready to move forward. Wow. That's an excellent piece of advice. Well, thank you again for joining us and tune in next week for more startup hacks. We have another great show. You won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money in building your business. Thank you. Thank you, Fernanda. This podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and we will see you next week.